Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. The following is a CA original. The Mighty Sound of the South, tailgating on Tiger Lane. Each one a Memphis football tradition. This is the Tiger Football Podcast. What's happening, Tiger football fans? We are back for another edition of the Tiger Football Podcast. I'm Mark Giannato, Commercial Appeal Sports Columnist. I'm joined, as always, by Evan Barnes, our Tiger football beat writer. We are coming to you... uh, on the eve, I guess, technically, a day before Memphis plays its uh, Thursday night game against Tulsa. They're coming off a fourth straight loss, Memphis is, uh, after losing to UCF 35-28 to over the weekend. Is that the right score, Evan? Yes, it is. 35-28. Yes, 35-28 um, on homecoming. Coming another uh, disappointing loss for the Tigers. They dropped to four and five overall. Uh, they now need to win two of their last three games um, to get bowl eligible for a ninth straight. It would be ten straight seasons or nine straight seasons. I believe it would be nine. Nine, nine for a ninth straight season. Um, not unlike the scenario they encountered a year ago. Um, because ultimately one of the three games is that FCS game against North Alabama. I would hope uh, they they win that. So really we're talking about you got to win one of your last two conference games, uh, either Thursday night against Tulsa at home or the regular season finale at SMU. Given SMU just scored 77 points against Houston, um, seems like the safer bet. For them to accomplish it would be tomorrow night against Tulsa, a Tulsa team that is struggling this year, um, though they have a you know decent offense, uh, is not uh, having the greatest year. It f- feels like their coach, Philip Montgomery, might get fired uh, when this thing's over. But um, we'll dive into that in a little bit, but we're going to rehash the UCF game, talk about just the big picture implications of everything swirling around the program, another loss. So it's another week of speculation about what it might mean for Ryan Silverfield's job. We'll dive into that. Um, And like I said, get you ready for the Tulsa game Thursday. But Evan, let's start with the UCF game. Uh, A couple different things to dive into. You know, there's the controversial fourth and 16 decision by Ryan Silverfield, um, the another game where turnovers, you know, and red zone offense felt like were really costly for them. Um, what to you when you look at that UCF game? What what do you think caused them to lose that game? Um, outside of the fact that UCF, you know, frankly was favored, was the technically the better team. Um, what what issues really stood out to you in that UCF loss? I think you go back to the three red zone drives they had inside the UCF 10-yard line. 
that resulted in zero points. Um, that was what Tim Cramsey lamented on Tuesday when we spoke to them. He said they left 21 points on the table. When we watched the game, I thought that was critical because in a game against a ranked opponent or a team over, above 500, you make those kind of mistakes. They hang over you a little bit more. So I thought that was probably the most critical as much as Seth Hennigan's two interceptions were. I mean, you could argue the first one was a little bit, you know, fluky where Gabe Rogers maybe could have put his hands on it or Seth admitted he could have thrown the ball a little bit, you know, not as hard, zipped it over to him. But that bobbled around and let got to the hands of UCF. The second interception was a bad decision, you know, the bad throw that uh, Caden Priestcorn, I think it was behind him, but it was a little bit high, I believe. Um, and it got right into the hands of a UCF receiver or defensive back. But I think the three, the three red zone trips that ended in zero points, that was costly. Because I thought Memphis actually played UCF pretty well. I thought UCF did not play great, to be honest with you. But I thought that Memphis made more mistakes. And in a game like that, you can't make those mistakes against a better team. It kind of reminded me of that uh, 2018 game at home we saw where, where Memphis lost to UCF after leading um, most of that game. And so it's like, when you're playing against a team like that, you can't make those kind of mistakes. And I thought the 21 points they left on the table with the red zone drives was perhaps as important as the fourth and 16 that I'm sure we're going to get into. Yeah, and to your point, Memphis, according to the stats I'm looking at, has had 43 red zone trips this year, and 38 of them have resulted in either a field goal or a touchdown. So that means three of the five times this season – in which they didn't come away with scores in the red zone occurred in that game the other <laughs> night, uh, the other day, excuse me, um, which is pretty uh, remarkable. Um, you know, a lingering problem is they now have a 65% uh, touchdown rate in the red zone, which is six, 59th in the country, which, you know, I guess isn't terrible, but also isn't good either. Um, and, uh, you know, compare that to say 2019, um, well, you know what? They're better than 2019 in the red zone. So, <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, they were the, in terms of touchdown rate. So that's, but, but that's the thing. Like this is a team that doesn't have a big margin for error and red zone offense was an area where they were not doing poorly this year. And then now it's, it's an issue that crops up in this UCF game. Um, and it kind of adds to this narrative of, it feels like, you know, you can, you, it feels like this is a team they're putting their finger in the hole of, you know, the, the water's coming out of the dam, they're putting their finger in and then another, you know, another hole opens <laughs> up somewhere uh, and they can't, they can't get it fixed. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with you though. That felt like, you know, in the moment you were like, oh man, this is going to be, um, this is going to be trouble. Um, and it turned out to be just that. Um, and then, you know, you mentioned Seth Hennigan, you know, I, I do think the throw was a little high in the red zone. Gabe Rogers probably could have caught it. Um, mm -hmm. he also, his interception in the fourth quarter was, you know, an off target high ball. He's been throwing a lot of high balls lately. Um, yes. and he admitted he, you know, he has not played, um, great during this four game losing streak. Um, but, um, so, 
He's he's got 16 touchdowns, seven interceptions this year. Um, his completion percentage is 65. percent It's not bad. I mean, he's having not bad. A, um, yeah, he's having like you know an equivalent year to last year. Um, which you know, last year he's pretty good. This year he's been you know all in all pretty good, but he hasn't he hasn't been able to take that step. Um, and I think that kind of is emblematic of the whole team. They have not feel it feels like they have not taken a step forward. Um, and uh, I think you're, you know, ultimately you're seeing it in these results um, in the last four games. None of them were particularly embarrassing. You know, the Tulane game is the closest result that was kind of embarrassing just with the way that I'd first say happened. Tulsa, but I'd say I'd say Tulsa was pretty embarrassing. I mean, they came back, but that, Tulane, that you mean? first half was too late. Tulsa, too late. Too late. Yes, that. Yes, that was embarrassing. I'm. Yeah. I can't get over that one. I mean, yeah, that, that the way half. that first half went was bad. But the three other losses, they're right in it, you know. And then, mm-hmm. you know, to that point, we we've avoided it, um, <laughs> you know, because well, and we should talk about the other before we get into the fourth and sixteen. There was also the fourth and one in the first half when they were in the red zone where they can't convert on fourth and one um, inside. I think it was like inside the, it was like on the six or seven yard line. And um, some people were critical. Like you take, you know, it's early in the game. You're at home, take the points, you know, take kick a field goal there. Um, I didn't really have a problem with going for it on fourth down there. I just think you probably, you know, you would just run, ram the ball up into the gut, you know, up into the teeth of that UCF defense like once or twice before, and you did it again on fourth and one out of the shotgun. Um, and so to me, it wasn't going for it on fourth down. I didn't have a problem with that. I understood, you know, like UCF, you feel like has a dynamic offense and you want to make sure you're getting touchdowns when you're down there. Um, my problem was with the play calling. It wasn't, you know, like it feels like in these big moments, the play calling is not very, has not been very good, has not been creative, has not risen to meet the moment. Um, and that was yet another example of it. It felt like it just felt like a very pedestrian play call in that fourth and one situation. I know you'd been running the ball effectively, but the previous player two, they had stonewalled you. And it felt like the, it called, the situation called for something more creative. Yeah, the third and three before that, they were they got two yards, and that's a play where you hope to get three, but you got two yards, and in the fourth and one, you got stuff for a one yard loss. I'm gonna bring this up real quick, Mark. And I I have I tried to ask Brian Schofield about this on Monday, and he kind of you know tried to make a general point, but this is a stat from Football Outsiders, a great analytics site that you know has a lot of great details so on power success rate these are plays that are um percentage of runs on third or fourth down two yards or less to go that achieve the first down or touchdown so let's say that fourth and one falls into that category so memphis in the nation is 99th and i mean they're that's there with tcu's 100th um let's see there's a few other teams behind them but they're 99th and that is one of the issues I've had with this this the run game is that when you need a short yard or two, they've struggled to get them with the consistency that you'd like to see. And I think, you know, 
I asked Ryan Sewerfield about, you know, hey, you know, how would you assess the offensive line? And he said that they did better against UCF because they didn't allow any sacks. You know, the continuity is getting better because guys are healthier. But I tried to probe a little bit more to say, you know, but are you concerned? You know, how would you assess the entire season? Because it seems like the run game hasn't been as strong. And he pointed to other things. He pointed to maybe, you know, we haven't had a 150-yard back for certain reasons. You know, the defense, everyone's got to do better. But I think you can point to that that particular play, the fourth and one, you know, yeah, the play calling could have been a little bit more imaginative, but if you can't get a fourth and one right there after you had just gotten third and, you know, third and three got two yards, it speaks to the concern about this offensive line. And you wonder about the school that, you know, has called itself RBU or called itself RBU after 2019 and 2020, they're not able to get those tough yards consistently. And so I think that's what concerned me is that here you go again, we're talking about the run game. We're talking about the offensive line. And it's another thing that people are going to look at this team and say they're falling backwards. They're not doing the things that they were known for doing. Well, and I think it just speaks to the a problem I've had with Silverfield for a couple of years and that he feels like he coaches the team in a manner of like this is what he wants them to be and doesn't mm-hmm. coach them as 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 they are. Like he wants them to be a power running team. And they just haven't been like under him. They just haven't been, you know, and it still feels like he coaches them that way, especially in those key moments. And it's like, that's not the team you have. Like you have some things that are nice that you can rely, that you can, you can turn to. I don't think power running is one of them, Um, you know, and then, you know, and then the reality is, you know, when they started the year four and one, they were elite. They were second in the country in turnover margin. Now, uh-huh. after these four straight losses, they're fiftieth in the country in turnover margin. They are, you know, middle of the pack. And um, they now, you know, they have they're only a plus two overall in turnover margin for the year. Um, and obviously, that's sliding backwards right now. So. Um, that is uh, another problem. All right, let's go to and you know because you have a small margin for error this year. Like that is just the reality of the the team that Memphis has. We've seen it in this four game losing streak. You know these three of them, three of the games could have gone. You know Memphis could have won three of the four of these four games they've lost. Right. Um, more so the first two. You know Houston and ECU, um, but. Here's the truth. It's a tie game late in the third quarter against UCF. Memphis is facing a, you know, Memphis is driving down the field, gets a targeting call on tight end John Hassel um, that results in a ridiculously long delay while the refs try to figure out if it's targeting. Then it feels like they like forgot where the yard, you know, where the ball was supposed to be placed and it just took forever. And it unfortunately, not only did the targeting call negate a first down for Memphis, they would have had first and 10 at UCF's 21, I believe. So yes. that gets negated. But then also it just felt like all the momentum from this long delay uh, just got zapped from Memphis. And you could feel it as it as it was happening, as this delay took forever for them to figure out where to put the ball sitting up in the press box, I could feel it, you know, it was like, oh man, like this is, they were really moving the ball. Um, And it looked like they were going to go in and take the lead, whether 
a field goal or touchdown. And but then whatever. So but the reality is momentum was gone. They're facing fourth and 16 at UCF's 39 yard line. Um, Chris Howard had already missed a field, a long field goal at the end of the first half going the same direction and uh-huh. it came up way short. So like it, I understood why you don't kick a field goal there. Like it didn't look like with the way the wind was swirling, he didn't have the leg to kick that long of a field goal. So your options, it felt like were punt and pin UCF, try to pin UCF deep in their own territory, or I guess go for it. And I say, I guess, because I didn't really think that was an option. Um, but Ryan Silverfield proved me wrong um, because he decided to go for it. Um, and I don't know. It felt like, you know, you had already lost the momentum and it felt like that decision gave UCF momentum. Um, and because obviously the play did not work and UCF had a somewhat short field and they go 61 yards down the field and score a touchdown to take the lead for good. Um, yep. It was a decision. I thought it was a terrible decision by Ryan Silverfield. You have one of the best punters in the country. He said after the game, you know, we're only average at those pooch punts. But I don't know. Even You know, and, and, and his th- theory was it's a gray area because if he kicks it into the end zone, it's only a gain of 19 yards. And I would just say, well, I'd still rather have UCF have to go 80 yards than 61 yards. Like the probability, it's not like it was fourth and six or fourth and set eight. It was fourth and 16. And like, I, I don't know. It just felt like it, it reeked of desperation in a moment that didn't call for desperation. Your defense had just forced two, three and outs in a row to start the second half. Like, kick the ball and see if your defense can stop them again. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. It was, it no. felt like a, it was, it was not felt, it was a terrible decision, whether Ryan Silverfield wants to admit it or not. And it sounds like he does not want to admit that, you know, he said after the game, basically, it, he basically said he'd do it again. And right. like, and, and I, I don't know. It, it felt like I, I don't know if that's the reason they lost the game because ultimately they did get the ball back with a chance to tie the score. And that just felt like a moment where it was just like, what, what are we doing here? Yet another kind of just strange decision. Yeah. Nah, I, I, I can't, I, I agree hundred percent. I mean, if you, you go back to what you said in these close games, decisions matter, right? right? Choices matter. Like you can go back to the ECU game where on the second overtime two-point conversion, you know, the, the play call, you know, maybe that play call was the right play call, but it just wasn't executed well. You go back to um, the Houston game, little things like not tackling Clayton Toon on fourth and 11, not stopping Houston on another fourth down that drive. Um, you go back to um, all those things where you look at it and just say, it's just one thing here, one thing there, but all that adds up. And I think to me, this game was clearly you could point to and say, all right, the three red zone drives that were empty were huge. But this play, this call by Ryan Schofield was just as huge because UCF turned it into points and Memphis never threatened as far as, you know, the game goes. Even when they scored that last touchdown, 
they still had to get stops on defense that they did not get because UCF was running the ball so well. That's where you felt like, like you said, it felt desperate. It felt like the play you look at when the season's over and say, if the season goes bad, that's one play that stands out that people are going to remember. Like, why did he do that? Why did that happen? And I was, I was confused by it. But again, it speaks to when things are bad, decisions like that either happen or they make things worse just because it's everything snowballing all at once. And so that's why you're looking at this Tulsa game like, hey, you know, sure, Memphis is favored to win this game, but based on the decision-making, the execution, you have some serious worries going into this game because that 4th and 16 is an example of it. If it's a tight game, can you trust Memphis to execute or make the right decision in a game of that magnitude? And right now, people have questions about it, and they should. Yeah, well, and it, 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 it fits into the bigger picture conversation of what are they going to do with Ryan Silverfield here? Um, we'll get into Tulsa in a sec, but but in a broader sense, this Tulsa game, you know, whereas it felt like the UCF game was one where if he won it, it felt like he would guarantee he'd give himself another year if he could beat UCF last week. Um, this Tulsa game, given how challenging it feels like the SMU game on the road could be, I'm not saying it's impossible to win at SMU, but it does feel like this is the much easier game to envision them winning, um, given their issues on the road under Ryan Silverfield when they're playing someone other than Navy. And um, mm-hmm. given, you know, SM, you know, I, I just don't know if they can score enough to keep up with SMU. Um, but regardless, it, it this game feels like you lose this, now you're really putting your job in jeopardy because if you don't make a bowl game this year, well, then the conversation, I think, becomes, you know, the the administrators who are hesitant to make a move, the president, the AD, what have you, well, I think the conversation changes if you're not bowl eligible, if the bowl streak is over. Um, And I think if you don't beat Tulsa, yeah, technically you'll still, you know, you'll be four and six. You're probably going to beat North Alabama. You'll have a chance to get bowls with SMU and you want to see it play out. But the odd, you know, the odds are, uh, what's the hunger game saying? The odds are not in your favor. (laughs) May the odds ever be in your favor. They won't be in your favor if you don't win this Tulsa game on Thursday. Um, So bigger picture, there's a lot of, it feels like, pressure on this game this weekend um given the uncertainty about ryan silverfield's future i i agree i think let's just be honest you have to win this game if you don't win this game i'll go ahead and say it right now you're not going to be bowl eligible because yes you'll beat north alabama um we know memphis is not a great road team first of all like we know that you're going to SMU, who you just mentioned, you know, did all that uh, fireworks show, putting up 77 points. I think that game is as tricky as a tricky game. So let's let's be honest. Memphis has to win this game to be bowl eligible. I, I don't see them upsetting SMU on the road, you know, for a team that's only won three road games since Ryan Silverfield's become head coach. Um, so this game is a must win. And I think if you're looking at this from the decision maker side of things, even if you win this game, if it's a close game and Tulsa has given teams a fight, 
how comfortable would you feel as an administrator or a, or a mover and shaker of Memphis if Memphis struggles with Tulane and let's say the crowd is considerably lower. Let's say it's 23, 24,000 at best on a weeknight game. What do you look at and say, how do you look at this and say, you're in a good place? How do you look at this and say, things are going to be all right? Because we're basically saying, hey, win this game, you might have a chance to go six and six, which is exactly what you did last year. Or by some miracle, you beat us and you may be seven and five. Um, but let's just assume right now that they win this game, they beat North Alabama, you know, the worst you can do is six and six, which means we're back where we were last year. And if you're the, if you're someone in the administration, you got to ask yourself, hey, the fans are rumbling. The outsiders are looking at Memphis like this program is not what it was anymore. And I think you mentioned this, I believe, a year or two ago in the AAC. Those teams, when they when you lose a coach who's been successful, things go south really quickly. You see what happens at Temple. You see South yeah. Florida, who five years ago was right there with UCF, and now they're, you know, they fired their second coach since 27, since, you know, uh, Willie Taggart left them. So you can see how it turns just like that on a coaching hire. So Memphis has to, the administrators have to look at this and say, are you satisfied with the product? Are you satisfied with the fact that you need to beat Tulsa to keep your season alive? This is now a game that's a must win. Are you going to be happy with what the crowd is going to look like? You know, are you going to be happy with what the crowd looks like for North Alabama? You know, um, I, I just feel like this so much hinges on this game. And the fact that it does, it means the administrators have to look at that and say, are you happy with where the program is right now? Where, again, it's November and Tulsa is like, the hinge win that you need right now. Yeah. Well, I don't think anyone's happy with where the program is right now. Would be it Ryan Silverfield, Laird Veach, the fans. Um, I don't think anyone's ha- the question is, are they unhappy enough to be willing to spend the money to make a change? Um, and my my gut tells me if they can get bowl eligible, it'll give them I don't think they really have the stomach to fire a sick, a, a bowl eligible Memphis football coach unless someone steps up and makes it easier to stomach. And by that, I mean like a booster or two or whatever, like getting your ducks in a row. But I don't think, you know, like comparing this, for instance, to the, t- the last time Memphis fired a coach, Tubby Smith, mm-hmm. one, it was basketball. So, you know, frankly, um, you know, there's a little more impetus there, if you will, because, um, you know, whether that's fa- whether that should be that way or not, that's the reality. Um, there's more, you know, there's more big money backing basketball at Memphis at times than football. Now, that's part of the reason why I think Memphis, you know, and historically now, you know, th- that being true historically is part of the reason why Memphis is in the situation it's in from a conference realignment standpoint, they spent, you know, they took too long. They waited way too long to emphasize football. Um, They've done a nice job emphasizing football over the last 10 years, but it's a little, it's it given what we've seen play out, it feels like a little too little too late type of deal. Um, But um, the, the way, you know, but I don't think unlike the basketball situation a few years ago with Tubby, you know, it felt like the administration and specifically David Rudd was working behind the scenes to cultivate 
an atmosphere, and by atmosphere I mean money, to make to to if they wanted to make a move on Tubby Smith, they had their ducks in a row. I don't really sense that's happening with football. Like I don't think Laird Veach or Bill Hardgrave are actively working to try and make sure, you know. I think they're trying to find reasons to keep Ryan, not find reasons to let him go. And I think, for instance, with Tubby Smith, it was the opposite. It felt like then the administration, or specifically, I should say, David Rudd and the, you know, the the boosters were looking for reasons to get rid of Tubby Smith, mm-hmm. not reasons to keep him. And so that's why, you know, should should Ryan Silverfield keep his job if they go six and six and go to a bowl game? My gut tells me, if my gut tells me that. When you know, you know, and I don't sense, I've said this on the podcast the past few weeks, I don't sense him coming back from this long term that, you know, like he may keep his job for next year, but I would not predict he is going to be the rare head coach who's maligned and turns it around and becomes the long-term solution at head coach. Um, And so if I was running the department and I felt that way, if I didn't believe in him, I would just make the move now because you're just delaying the inevitable. Now, what they should do and what they will do, I think, are different. Um, and so that's why this game Thursday night feels so important because I do think a win against Tulsa and presumably a win over North Alabama to get bowl eligible. Um, I think that will, uh, I think it, I, I find it hard to imagine, not hard to imagine. I, I just, my gut tells me that's going to be enough for him to keep his job for another year. They'll be able to spin Well, you, you're going to hear a lot of talk, Evan. And I want, I want to tell people now to, to like, remember what was actually said when Ryan was hired, but you're going to hear a lot of talk of. Well, you know, year this year four is really what he, this was. This was what the plan was. Was year four <laughs> was when they were really going to hit their stride. Seth's going to be a junior. Ryan's going to have the O line that he's wanted. You know, they're going to be older and more experienced. You know, his coordinators is going to be their second year. You're going to hear a lot of that. Yes, yes. And I just want people to remember what was actually said when when he was hired. It was. We are going to keep this thing rolling. It was not, this is a four-year project to bring this back. Like, you know, he inherited a Cotton Bowl team, all right? So, like, yes. I want to make sure when, it, when you know, as they're spinning this, if, if indeed Ryan keeps his job, make sure you're remembering that. Now, that being said, like I said, if you don't go, if you're not bowl eligible, I think all bets, you know, all bets are off. Um and even like I said, if he's six and six, I think if someone stepped up with the money, I think they might make a move. But I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Um, yeah, you know, I don't know if, and I don't know, I don't think the, I don't think they're canvassing for that to happen. Like I said, I think they are looking for reasons to keep Ryan, and beating Tulsa, I think will give them a reason. You know, will give them something to be able to to push out there um, if they decide to keep Ryan. But my gut tells me 
it's not going well, and it's not just you know, like it just. I feel like you're delaying the inevitable if you keep them. That's the position I'm in right now. I've seen nothing to suggest that he is the guy who is going to lead Memphis to conference championships in the new look AAC. Um, you know, so I mean, he was ultimately hired a- as an interim three years ago. He was, you know, frankly, no other Division One school in the country would have hired him as a head coach other than Memphis. And three years in, the results have been increasingly disappointing. And I, I don't know that that's that that strikes me as a you know as not great and and not worth you know stringing along simply because you don't want to pay the buyout so to speak. Um, but. You know, it's a tough, I guess it's a tough decision um, because you've never, you know, again, if you beat Tulsa and you get bowl eligible, you make the decision a lot tougher because frankly, you know, Memphis, is, I don't think has ever fired a coach who's gone to a bowl game. They, they so have, they have be not, doing something that would be, yeah. So um, a very, very interesting moment in the history of football. I will say no matter what happens, if you keep him, even if he wins out, Maybe if he won the last three and then won the bowl game, this would change. But, like, if he goes six and six, and let's say even he wins some crappy bowl game, you know, wins the Independence Bowl or the Frisco Bowl against some other Sun Belt or Conference USA team, let's say he does that, like, there's not going to be any enthusiasm for this program going into next year. Like, people are going to, like, you have lost the casual fan already given what's happened the last three years. And you're starting to lose some of the diehards because they're frustrated with where the program is, given where it was such a short time ago. So um, just a, it's a it's a it's a fascinating dilemma. And as I wrote, I think it's like you know, you mentioned Jeff Scott at USF. I almost feel like in some ways that's a better situation because it was just hmm. obvious he sucked and you had to fire him. Like, this isn't a total disaster at Memphis. You know, like I said, they could have won two or three of these four games they've lost. They've been in three of the four games, by and large. Um, And, you know, but at the same time, like I said, I don't see them getting back to the top of the AAC with Ryan Silverfield leading the program. Um, And so that's almost like the worst spot you can be as a college football program. It's like... I, I described it in my column as college football's wilderness. Like you're just kind of uh-huh. wandering around aimlessly. Um, and at least like at USF, like they were so bad that it was obvious you have to get rid of Jeff Scott, you know? And I don't, you know, you're not in that situation necessarily with Ryan. I'm sure some people listening would go, oh, it's obvious you should get rid of Ryan Silverfield. <laughs> but I think in terms of the reality, it's not that, it's not, quite so obvious and so here we are i think you said it well mark i don't even know what else to say i think you laid it out so well that i almost want to be like should we just move on to tulsa because what what can i add to that i think you you spelled out the autopsy so well that yeah i think we go on to, we, we talk about this tulsa game but you well, laid it what out do you, well, well since yeah since we've said it's such a key game for ryan Silfield, what to you how do they win this game how do they beat Tulsa? And that's weird to say because Tulsa is what two and seven, um, two and not six, a good two team and, this year. Three and six. Three and two six. Two and six. Right. Excuse me. Three and six. 
They're three and six. Three and six. It looks like their coach might get fired at the end of the year, Philip Montgomery, um, potentially. Um, it looks like, to me, the key matchup seems to be Tulsa has a top 30 passing offense. Memphis has a the 119th passing defense in the country. Um, yeah, bottom but, uh, What do you think? Yeah, I think that's going to be a, a, a key thing. How how will the secondary hold up? Because not only does Tulsa have a top 30 passing offense, they have a receiver who's in the top five receiving in the country in Keelan Stokes. He's a 5'10 dude who's, I believe, has six 100-yard games out of nine this year. Um, he had one of his worst games by yardage total last week against Tulane, and he's still, I believe, third in the country in receiving yards, if I'm not mistaken. Um Yes, third in the country in receiving yards, um, and he's fourth in receiving yards per game. So that's going to be a key matchup. But I also think another key thing is, and we have it up at our scouting report at commercialappeal.com, Tulsa cannot stop the run. Tulsa, I believe, is the third worst rushing defense in the country. So maybe this is the game where Memphis finds a way to run the ball. I don't know. But if there's ever a chance for them to get that ground game going, this would be the time to do it. So I think that's going to be critical. Um, I think Memphis can protect Seth Hennigan again because with that Tulsa 335 defense, you're not going to see a lot of pressure on Seth. So maybe this is a game where he, who has seen this defense last year, he comes out and has a better game because he's not going to be caught off guard and he'll have time to make a decision. But I think that's going to be key. Can the Memphis secondary, which by the way, had three players, I believe, who were out last week. But Greg Rubin, I believe, should be healthy to play. He was at practice. Um, we'll see if he plays. Um, that's what's going to be a key matchup for me. And also the turnover battle. Memphis has got to win the turnover battle. Um, I believe Tulsa, if I'm not mistaken, has a takeaway in every game this season, at least one. So if you're Memphis, you got to find a way to win the turnover battle. We said it last week. I'm going to say it again. Memphis has to win the turnover battle. And one more thing, we don't know yet which quarterback is going to start for Tulsa. I believe Davis Brin, who started most of the year, has a shoulder injury right now. He did not play last week against Tulane. And they turned to a freshman in, um, I believe his name is, where is it here? Braylon Braxton, who started um, last week against Tulane. He played in several games uh, when, when Davis Brin was hurt with other injuries. And so if, if if Memphis faces a freshman quarterback, that's an advantage you got to capitalize on it and make him struggle. Or if Davis Brin plays, you've got to hope that secondary holds up. So those are going to be some of my keys for this game. Oh, one more thing. Tulsa's giving up 4.3 sacks per game. Um, Memphis, you're not the worst sack team in the country facing these guys. You are now facing a team that is worse at giving up sacks. So this is a chance for Memphis to create some pressure and win the trenches because if they don't win that and they don't force turnovers, it's going to be a longer day at Simmons Bank Liberty Stadium. Yeah, because it is interesting when you look at Tulsa. They've got terrible rushing defense and actually a top 15 passing defense in the country. Now, I don't know if that's a product of teams just don't throw on them very much because they can just run it on them. Um, (laughs) I'm, I'm guessing that's part of it. Um, and it's interesting, this passing offense, it's, you know, it's rated highly, but it's a little misleading. So the first three weeks of the season, they threw for 460, 322, and 457 yards. Uh-huh. Uh, only once since over their last six games, excuse me, twice, 
No, once. Have they thrown for more than 250 yards in a game? And the last three games, they've thrown for 155, 216, and 146 yards. So it's a passing offense that has been that, that has diminishing returns, we should say, <laughs> um, by and large. Yes. However, you know, they did they gave they gave SMU a decent game a couple weeks ago. They won at Temple. Um, and their other wins are Northern Illinois and Jacksonville State. This is a bad AAC team. Okay. Let's put it that way. Um, and if you can't win this game, you know, I think it speaks volumes about where you are as a program. I think we've already seen, you know, they are they very clearly this year, Memphis is not among the top half of the league, mm-hmm. but this is one of the bad teams in the league this year. And, you know, if you can't beat one of the bad teams in the league, then it's fallen off even more than we thought. That's what I would say. I completely agree. So we will see what happens on Thursday. But, yeah, if you put it this way, the loser of this game has a lot of questions about the future of their program. If Phil Montgomery is gone, they, they, if Tulsa loses, they won't be bowl eligible. That might doom his his future. If yeah, this, loses, could, this could be – this could be a, a classic pro. It's wrestling night. This could be a loser leaves town type of match t- matchup. Hey. Philip Montgomery or Ryan Silverfield. Yeah, I I think so. Don't 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 let Jared King Lawler hear that. He's going to be at the game on Thursday. Maybe he'll have some some funny commentary behind the scenes. But yeah, it's it's looking like an interesting one, man. Yeah. I'll be interested in how they pull off wrestling like Lex Luger and Ricky the Steamboat, Ricky Steamboat, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat yes. are going to be there apparently. Um, yes. Hopefully, uh, hopefully there'll be some good football along with uh, some wrestling um, at the at Simmons Bank Liberty Stadium. All right, we'll have tons of coverage over at CommercialAppeal.com Thursday night. Uh, Evans got his scouting report up already. Uh, over at commercialpeel.com to get you ready for the game. 6.30 kickoff on national TV, ESPN2, I believe. ESPN um, regular, ESPN regular. Oh, really? We got the regular ESPN. Oh, boy. A lot of eyes on this <laughs> Memphis-Tulsa game. The loser loser leaves town game at Simmons Bank Liberty Stadium for wrestling night, potentially. Um, so make sure you're checking out all our coverage We'll be there oh, uh, on Mark, Thursday. One more thing. One more thing, Mark. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't mention this because, you know, this is our story that kind of helped got the ball rolling. Memphis will also be honoring Glenn Rogers Sr., the program's first black player at halftime. They will have his decal, twenty, the number six jersey, sprayed as a decal on the field. They will honor him at halftime. Um, we're going to obviously include the link to our story about uh, Glenn Rogers Sr. and kind of what he went through at Memphis. But I think this is actually an important thing that Memphis is doing because – when you look at Glenn Rogers Sr., what he meant as, you know, the first black player to walk on and then in 1968, and then in 1969, he and Stan Davis were the first black football players to play in a game at Memphis. I think it's important that Memphis is doing this. Um, his son, Glenn Rogers Jr., played at Memphis. A lot of a lot of black players in Memphis who were around that era hold him in high regard. So I want to make sure we shout out. That's going to happen at halftime. I think fans definitely should um, give Mr. Rogers Sr. a great – um, ovation for somebody who is who said before that he wasn't he didn't feel the love from Memphis at first but now he's feeling that love there's a plaque at the football complex honoring him that's going to be an important part of this game as well so I just want to shout that out yeah thanks for thanks for mentioning that your story was great on it I 
recommend everyone go check it out. I'm sure you'll tweet out the link on your Twitter account at Evan underscore B. Um, all right. Till next time, I was Mark. That was Evan. Thanks so much. And we will see you at Simmons Bank Liberty Stadium, hopefully, on Thursday night. Tiger Football Podcast is a production of the Commercial Appeal. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.